This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. HIV once had a very grim prognosis, but with extensive research, we now have highly effective pharmacotherapy for the management of patients with HIV. Unfortunately, the number of new HIV cases, which once was declining, has now stabilized for the past five years. The CDC believes that this plateau is because effective prevention strategies and treatment options are not reaching those who could most benefit from them. Our topic today is the management of HIV, and here to discuss this topic with us is Dr. Stacy Rizza, an infectious disease expert in the Division of Infectious Disease at Mayo Clinic. Welcome, Stacy. Hello. Thank you for having me here today. Well, let's talk about treating HIV. Is it a treatable condition? Yes, it is treatable in the sense that we manage HIV in the vast majority of our patients. So if somebody is diagnosed with HIV, it's essential that they be linked to care with the HIV specialist so that we can initiate HIV therapy. And what that involves is medications that target different parts of the HIV life cycle to decrease its replication. And the magic number for many years with HIV was three, that we needed to have three different medications that targeted different parts of the life cycle. That's now moving towards two with some of our stronger drugs. But the good news is, is many drug companies have co-formulated the medicines. So even though it's three drugs, it's actually in the vast majority of cases, a single pill a day that people take. So as long as somebody takes their pill every single day, in many situations, it's easier than treating their high blood pressure. It's much easier than treating their diabetes. It's actually just a pill a day that must be taken every single day. And the goal of that therapy is to decrease the amount of HIV virus that's replicating to the point that if we draw blood in a patient with HIV, our machines are not able to detect the HIV. Hmm. Now we know it's still there in hiding, integrated into the cells in the lymph node, the spleen, the liver, but at least it's not replicating in the blood and killing CD4 cells or hurting end organs. I've heard reports on mostly news broadcasts where they claim that there's actually been some who've been cured from HIV. Is that accurate? Yeah, so we're, we're moving into a new world in HIV, a world that many of us never thought would ever happen within our lifetime. Um, but there's there are essentially two people in the world, definitely one, probably two, that have what we call a functional cure. And by functional cure, that means they are not on HIV therapy, and if you look in their blood and you look everywhere, you can't find HIV. Now, if you really, really hunt, you can find little bits of it here or there, but it's not enough to replicate, and it's not enough to show up on our blood test. The first one is a man who's come out publicly. His name is Timothy Ray Brown, and he's in the news frequently referred to as the Berlin patient. He's actually an American but had his medical therapy in Berlin, and he has been without HIV detectable off therapy for probably close to 10 years now. About three months ago, not even that, probably two months ago, a second similar patient was announced out of London. That patient hasn't gone long enough that we can definitively say that they are a functional cure, but they're looking very, very much like they probably are the second case. All the other cases you heard in the news were premature, and most of them ended up having the virus come back. Mm -hmm. 
I imagine those two that you mentioned are being highly studied in terms yes. of figuring out why are they uh, getting rid of this disease. So both of them went through a stem cell transplant or a bone marrow transplant. They needed it for other diseases. Uh -huh. Either they had leukemia or they had lymphoma. And the obstacle to curing HIV is an entire seven podcasts in and of itself. But just to touch on it very briefly, the whole obstacle is not the free virus that's in the blood that we can treat with our medicines, but HIV will integrate itself into the host genome and go into resting cells, resting CD4 T cells, and then hide away in the lymphoid tissue. And that's where it stays reservoired. The immune system can't see it. It's not replicating. The drugs can't get to it. It's in hiding. So the whole approach to HIV cure is how do you wake those cells up and purge them? Mm -hmm. How do you get those cells to start replicating HIV again? And how do we kill those cells without wiping out everything else? And the way it happened in these two gentlemen was they had a hematologic illness. They had ablative chemotherapy. They had stem cell transplants. They had ATG. They had funky cells put back in. It's, it's, somewhat complex on how it happened on each of them. Mm -hmm. And it was enough to deplete these cells and make their new cells non-infective so that when the little teeny bit of HIV was left in their body, it wasn't able to infect new cells. And right now, off HIV therapy, one for probably a decade, another for probably a year and a half, you can't find HIV. Hmm. Amazing. So with, tr tr with traditional therapy, will HIV shorten one's life? So it, it depends on the circumstance. If somebody is appropriately screened, as we're supposed to do in the United States, screen all, all adults for HIV, and they're diagnosed early when their CD4 count is still strong, and they're linked to care and started on therapy, the best we have, these therapies that can completely suppress the virus have only been around for uh, even short of 20 years in the high teens. So we don't know very long therapy, but the modeling that's been done, if people have the virus suppressed and they have a good CD4 count, we're expecting a normal life expectancy. Mm -hmm. Now, untreated HIV for a long time won't only hurt the immune system, but it can also cause endovascular disease like heart attacks and stroke. It can cause osteoporosis. It can cause kidney disease. It can even cause some dementia. So if somebody has had undiagnosed HIV, resulting in untreated HIV and has end organ disease, the end organ disease may shorten their life. But the HIV itself, as long as people are on therapy and suppressed and taking their pills every single day, they should have a normal life expectancy. Okay. So let's say a patient <clears throat> comes into our office and we diagnose them with HIV positive. What's the next step? Where should they go? Can that primary care provider start treatment? Should they go to a HIV clinic? So we highly recommend, and there's actually good data to support, that HIV should be managed by HIV specialists. These Actually, there have been trials that looked at that. And an HIV specialist may be an internist, but essentially means they spend their life treating HIV and they have thousands of patients experience and work in a major HIV center. So there is very good data that patients are much better served by being referred to an HIV clinic to be cared for by HIV specialists. It's still a fairly complex disease, and unfortunately, in contrast to many other disease states, there's no forgiveness. So if you use the wrong antihypertensive drug for a while and you realize they had side effects and it wasn't working, you switch and, you know, nothing, no sweat is lost and everybody's fine and moves on. 
In HIV, if you make a mistake, the virus mutates and it stays that way the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. So there's no going back. So you really have to be an HIV expert and really have to be making thoughtful decisions. The other beauty of referring somebody immediately to an HIV clinic is the vast majority of large academic and non-academic HIV centers have enormous resources for the patients. So I'll give you an example at our clinic at Mayo. We have HIV-trained pharmacists, we have HIV-trained nurse, we have HIV-trained caseworkers, HIV-trained social workers, as well as physicians, and they can provide that team care to the patient. We also have federal Ryan White funding that will help pay for patients' transportation. We have funding to help pay for their medications. We have funding to help pay in certain situations for their um, health care. In general, we have free condoms. We have free lubricant. In general, the patient will benefit from going to that center where they can get that HIV-focused team care and have the benefit of these resources to help pay for their medications, their health care, their transportation, and everything surrounding their HIV needs. What about the patient who's had the disease for some time and is stable on treatment and either doesn't have easy access to an HIV clinic and they want to be managed locally? What should that provider be monitoring? So again, I think in there are many situations where this can be done through telehealth and through e-consults and the general internist or the practitioner who's taking care of that patient, I would recommend they still do it in concert with an HIV specialist. There are several things that have to be monitored from the HIV standpoint as well as from the general health standpoint. We frequently check a CD4 count to actually see what the CD4 number is because depending upon that, they may need prophylaxis for opportunistic infections. And then probably one of the most important tests we check is the HIV viral load, that that has to be or we want that to be suppressed. Mm -hmm. If that's not suppressed, then there's a whole string of actions that have to happen afterwards. And depending upon the situation, various different viral genotype and phenotype testing and tropism testing and all sorts of things that, again, probably should be handled by HIV experts. Network with speakers and attendees at the cutting edge of oncology at the upcoming Individualizing Medicine Conference in Scottsdale, Arizona. Held September 20th through the 21st and designed for the multidisciplinary care team, you'll be provided the opportunity to discover and discuss emerging topics in immunotherapy and applied genomics. To register, visit ce.mayo.edu and search immunotherapy. Listen weekly here at Mayo Clinic Talks as we discuss best practices and burning questions. Subscribe today using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. How about the other preventive services needs of HIV patients? Uh, Should they still receive routine immunizations, influenza, tetanus, so forth? Absolutely. Um, It again depends on the CD4 count. If somebody has a CD4 count that's over 200 for at least six months, they can get virtually all vaccines. If somebody's CD4 count is less than 200, we don't give them live vaccines, but they can get all other vaccines. Mm -hmm. The question is whether or not they'll respond. If their CD4 count's low and they're immunodepleted, just like anybody who's immunosuppressed from an organ transplant or any other reason, We can't always guarantee they'll respond to the vaccine as well if their immune system is suppressed, but they can still safely receive it as long as it's not a live vaccine. 
But if the CD4 count is over 200, then they should get all the same immunizations as somebody their age should otherwise get. Okay. How about the patient who, again, HIV positive, wants to go through a pregnancy? Any special needs for that individual? Yeah, we, we frequently have women in our clinic who have healthy HIV uninfected babies. We do this all the time. The, it is obviously good that the patient be in an HIV center because we can, ahead of time, if we know she wants to get pregnant, make sure she's on medications that are not tetragenic and that are safe during pregnancy. We frequently we will switch women beforehand if we know they're trying to get pregnant so that they're on meds that are safe for pregnancy. And then we just make sure she's suppressed throughout her pregnancy. If she is suppressed and taking the drugs every single day, the risk to the baby is extremely low, close to zero, that the baby will be infected. Mm -hmm. Now, if a mother is not on treatment and comes in in labor is the first time we see it, we still have things we can do to try to keep the baby negative. But obviously the ideal is that the mother be working with her HIV specialist, um, hopefully tell them ahead of time that she's considering getting pregnant. Sometimes pregnancies are unexpected, and if mm -hmm. that happens, again, the HIV experts will help manage the medications and decide what needs to happen. And then we follow her very closely during her pregnancy, making sure she's suppressed. And then afterwards, after the baby's born, if we had changed her meds, many times we'll change her back to her other meds if that were better for her in the first place. Can they safely breastfeed the baby? Um, yes, if she's on therapy. Um, in many parts of the world, it's recommended if the mother's not on therapy and not suppressed that the mother not breastfeed because you can transmit HIV through breast milk. But if the mother's on medication and suppressed and the baby's being monitored, um, there are situations where the mother can breastfeed. Okay. Let's say you have two patients, both partners, mm -hmm. and both are HIV positive. Yeah. Um, can they each have unprotected sex with each other without any concerns? So there are several different caveats to that answer. If an HIV patient is completely suppressed, their HIV viral load is undetectable, we now know, this is relatively new data and relatively new sort of trends, we now know that no matter who they have sex with, whether it's somebody without HIV or with HIV, their risk of transmission through sex is extremely low. In fact, it's close to zero. In fact, it's led to the campaign you may see in the news, a public health campaign called U equals U. Undetectable equals untransmittable. So if both the partners are undetectable, then according to U equals U, and they're monogamous, they're not having sex with other people, we have to worry about other sexually transmitted infections. The risk is so low that many times they may choose not to use condoms. Now, if they have viremia, we highly recommend they still use condoms. And the reason is, is somebody may have an HIV infection that's very easy to treat, and they take their one pill a day, and everything is great. But some HIV can be drug-resistant if people were not compliant with their medicines. And if somebody with HIV is on one pill a day and doing great, but their sex partner is not suppressed, viremic, and has drug-resistant HIV, we do not want our suppressed person to get that virus. Mm -hmm. You can be super infected. You can get a second HIV virus that has drug resistance. And then, again, as I said before, there's, there's no forgiveness in HIV. There's no going back. That person will have that virus the rest of their life. How close are we to having an immunization for HIV? Oh, not, unfortunately not extremely close. Um, there have been 
hundreds of millions, if not billions, of research dollars over decades put into trying to find an HIV vaccine. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a very, very smart virus. Um, it's a retrovirus that's, you know, in its, in its own form, likely as SIV and macaques and monkeys, has been around for, you know, so much longer than we have as human beings. And so virtually every kind of vaccine we've tried so far has not been effective at preventing HIV. So essentially in the vaccine world, there are two kinds of vaccines. There's a preventive vaccine and a therapeutic vaccine. So I think what you're referring to is the preventive vaccine, that right. we give it to people who don't have HIV, mm -hmm. and it prevents them from getting infected. And so far, we're not there. The closest we're getting is something called broadly neutralizing antibodies where you take antibodies that are very broad against HIV and you give them to people who don't have infection and try to prevent them from getting infected. And there's some hopeful data in macaques. In humans, it's still not there yet. Now, if you go to the therapeutic vaccine world, which is you take people who already have HIV, you give them a vaccine and it helps their immune system better treat the virus so it can suppress it without drugs or maybe even in an ideal world, cure it. Again, that work is very active and not quite there yet, but the broadly neutralizing antibodies are looking a little bit more promising. Not quite there, but looking more promising. Mm -hmm. But the short answer is we're not close. Okay. The long answer is there's a lot of work. It's very complicated. We'll see where it goes. Mm -hmm. So finally, where do you see the future for HIV? What do you see coming up in the near future that will help our patients? So there is an enormous amount of finance, energy, focus on HIV care. And that's where the vast majority of HIV research is right now. And it was essentially that fire was lit when the Berlin patient was first described, mm -hmm. that it is feasible. Now, his story is extremely unique. There have been multiple, multiple people who went through the exact same treatment that he did and the exact same methods and did not become cured of HIV. So it's not so simple as just do what happened to him and it'll work. The second one in London is looking promising too, but again, out of many, many, many patients, probably in the 20 to 30 range, it's only possibly two. That doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of research and that's where a huge focus is going on using therapy or vaccine therapy as a potential approach, gene therapy as a potential approach, on a more sort of practical, broad approach is using theories called like prime shock and kill or kick and kill and all these different ways to try to find ways to kill those reservoir cells. So I think that will continue to go and I think we'll continue to hear of more and more people in sort of interesting cases here and there who are cured over the next 10 to 15, 20 years. But I think the powerful approach that many, many countries and public health departments are taking is public health is probably our best way to control HIV. So condoms for everybody. Many countries are even giving condoms to commercial sex workers paying for their HIV care. But most importantly is screening our populations, finding out who has HIV, getting them on therapy so that they can stop spreading it to others. So if you actually stop and think about it, if every human being on planet Earth who had HIV were diagnosed, linked to care, and on therapy that was effective, HIV would be gone in one generation. Mm -hmm. 
So it's essentially that approach. Now, another part of preventing HIV isn't just condoms and treatment, but it's also something called PrEP, or pre-exposure prophylaxis, which we're truly encouraging people who might be at risk for HIV to engage in now. And what that means is instead of three HIV drugs that people take every day to treat their HIV, people who are at risk for HIV but are not infected can take two HIV drugs, and it's, again, combined into a single pill a day. And if they take that PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, every single day, their risk of becoming infected with HIV, even if they're exposed to it, is dramatically decreased, 95% decreased in many studies. And that's whether you're an IV drug user or whether you're at risk for HIV through sex, either men who have sex with men or heterosexual couples. So many countries like South Africa actually provides free PrEP to their commercial sex workers as well as condoms and using all these different mechanisms to prevent people from getting infected, as well as to treat the people who are infected so we can slow down the epidemic. So really the infectious disease world has done a lot to develop some really effective treatments. And the primary care providers really need to step up and focus on early disease identification, screening. Yes. Very good. And there's actually one more thing that we rely heavily on our primary care providers to do for our patients is firstly to screen the population and get the infected patients to us. But much of the health maintenance will happen in the hands of the primary care provider. So we'll treat the HIV, but we know now that HIV patients are at risk for cardiovascular disease, for kidney disease, for osteoporosis. So we rely heavily on our primary care providers to monitor the blood pressure and lipids, to treat that, to monitor in our HIV patients, bone density, you know, get referrals and treat the osteopenia and osteoporosis as it occurs, to watch the kidney. Much of that health maintenance screening is going to happen in the hands of the frontline primary care providers. So we really encourage our primary care providers to not only be thinking of HIV and screening for it, but to be working with their HIV colleagues to take care of the health maintenance of our infected patients. And all things we're used to doing. Absolutely, and that's why they're so they're the perfect place for that to happen. We've been discussing HIV with infectious disease specialist, Dr. Stacy Rizza. Stacy, thank you so much for being here and sharing this knowledge with us. My pleasure, thank you. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.